0: Hi, everyone. Today's Thursday, September 4th, 2008. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neurobiology podcast. Today we have with us Michael Mock, who's a professor at the Center of Learning and Memory and the section of Neurobiology at the University of Texas at Austin. Hi, Mike. Hi. Around the room, we have Carlos Palladini. Hello. Todd Troyer. Hello. Fidel Santa Maria. Hello. And Charles Wilson.
1: Good afternoon.
0: I'm Salma Karashi. Thanks for being with us. So uh, Mike, it's always surprising to me that cerebellum is implicated in such a diverse number of behaviors, which you know, granted mostly these things are are taken from lesion studies, and yet its organization is so uniform and conserved across evolution. Um, so is there, in your view, uh, and I'm sure there is actually, is there a core information processing role that unites all the various functions attributed to it?
2: Yeah, well, I think that's I think that's the answer to uh, to that question is that. Uh, we begin by studying parts of the brain by breaking them and asking the variety of things that go wrong when we do that. And sometimes there's a coherent theme to that and sometimes that theme uh, escapes us. But uh, in the end, the, uh, the coherent theme will always be the underlying computation and so uh, it, it's true that the cerebellum is a large structure. And it's, uh, the, the circuitry that you see is fairly uniform throughout that entire structure. And we infer from that that the, the computation that the cerebellum is doing in one place versus another place is the same. Uh, but there, there's, no, there's no good reason to believe that uh, if that's a useful computation that it might not be applied to a wide variety of different behaviors and, and, and get sent to uh, uh, many different parts of the brain. Uh, and so I, I think the unifying principle is is, is that is that computation uh, and, and not so much uh, that there will always be an obvious theme to the list of behaviors that, that, that require it.
0: So I heard you say earlier that as a systems neuroscientist, it's your job to put all the pieces together. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that in terms of what you see as the main goals of system neuroscience and maybe... Also, the utility of theoretical versus biologically based models toward what realizing the these goals.
1: What the hell system neuroscience is?
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a, it's a common question yeah. people Well, uh, use. you
1: know, so uh,
2: I don't want to speak with authority of what the precise definition of systems neuroscience is. It's, uh, it probably means different things to different people, and. Uh, I think it's a little bit like uh, the definition of artificial intelligence has sort of become the, the stuff that art people that artificial intelligence people are working on. So, uh, but but uh, having said that, I, you know, the systems neuroscience is that the brain is made up of systems, and system The job of systems neuroscience, as I see it, is to figure out how they work. Um, what that means, often from a practical standpoint, is that rather than focusing on the properties of the cells in the brain or the molecules that make up those cells, we're we're more often focusing on circuits and uh, how those circuits relate to behavior. So from a practical standpoint, it often means that. But What I've tried to make it mean in our work is that in, in terms of the cerebellum, is there are many people around the world studying the cerebellum and, and trying to understand pieces of it. So, and that work is always reductionistic. You have, to, you have to simplify things to make your experiment go. You have to strip away everything except what it is that you're studying. And so uh, that's an incredibly useful approach that can often give us very clear indications of how the pieces work. And I see the job of systems neuroscience in in large part is is to make sure that we can take that list of pieces and put it back together into a coherent understanding of how the pieces work together to make uh, that system go. So, Todd? So, So where does the cerebellum end? If it's is it just the uh, the cortex,
3: or is it go to the deep cerebral nuclei? If it's a system, where does it start and where does it end, and how much? do you, I ask that in terms of how much you have to include in yeah, in, no, in, in the, everything.
2: Well, so that's a funny question uh, for me because uh, there's a computer scientist at UT Austin who's asked me uh, to provide for him what the rules for input output trans- transformation are for the cerebellum. He doesn't. Doesn't want me to tell him anything about the cerebellum or how it works. He wants me to write down a set of rules for how informi- for inputs are transformed to output, and then he, uh, as a somebody who studies artificial intelligence, wants to play the game of building a system that will do that. And then the fun part would be to compare uh, the similarities and differences between what he built and what the, how the cerebellum works. And. Um, we're behind on that project because my, uh, we, what we, we have found it difficult to, to answer that question. So, at what level do we, do we draw the line and say, well, this is the input to the cerebellum and this is an output? An example of that is uh, one of the two classes of inputs to the cerebellum is called the climbing fiber. Uh, it's an important input to the cerebellum that's thought to be uh, the signal that says that something needs to change, that learning needs to occur. Well, one interesting thing about that is the cerebellum. The output of the cerebellum influences that input. So there's a projection from cerebellar output neurons back to that input. And so, uh, when we're specifying to this computer scientist, uh, inputs and outputs do. Uh, what do we include? Do we where, where do we draw the line? So in that in that case, where what we're telling him is only the excitatory input. Uh, to those climbing fibers because that's what comes from the other parts of the brain. It's actually inhibition that comes back from the cerebellum. So we, we kind of arbitrarily pick that as the dividing line there. There, yeah. I approach things from a functional standpoint. So, for example, there are uh, the vestibular nuclei in the brainstem, which. Um, uh, help, help control our balance and the movement of our eyes with respect to the, the uh, world and the vis- uh, vestibular system. Uh, and they are outside of the cerebellum, and anatomists have, have, have always not included them as part of the cerebellum, but yet they get inputs from the cerebellar cortex, and their connectivity is entirely like that of a, of a classic cerebellar deep nucleus, which is the traditional output of the cerebellum. So... These days, most people think of those vestibular nuclei as cerebellar deep nuclei, part of the cerebellum. And so I think it depends on what level we're looking at things. Functionally, I think uh, if it's a part of the circuit uh, in a coherent way, then, then we think of it that way. So for me, the, the cerebellum is the, is the mossy fiber inputs. That's the main input to the cerebellum. Uh, that's the input. And then I- anything that's functioning like a cerebellar deep nucleus is the, is the output.
0: I, Fidel.
4: Sorry, uh, I have a question. Um, it, I find surprising that, the, that uh, the cerebellum or the cerebellar cortex will have input from all types of sensory systems, right? But uh, it seems that the input is really fast. I mean, it goes from the trigeminal, tri- trigeminal nucleus or uh, there are very few synapses between the, uh, the world, outside world, and what happens within the cerebellum. So it, that tells me a little bit, or suggests me, that there is no preconditioning of the signal, of the input signal. So the, the cerebellar cortex will get the, the, the signal from uh, the auditory signal, or the visual signal, uh, or some skin signal, without being normalized for anything else, right? And then the cerebellum has the same structure, and in principle it will compute the same computation on all these different Mm -hmm. sensory input. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just find it very puzzling why there is no specialization, or like microcolumns or anything like that in the cerebellum, to actually uh, translate sensory input from the eye uh, compared to auditory input. So it's possible that the answer to
2: that question is that uh, there isn't time. So uh, when we we think about the cerebellum from a computational standpoint, the sort of picture that emerges is that its job is to predict what's going to happen next. And so if those predictions are made too late, then the output of the cerebellum won't be very useful. Mm -hmm. So, for example, a lot of the input to the cerebellum comes from proprioception, from the, the Golgi tendon organs and the muscle spindles that tell us about the, the, the angle of our joints and the load on our muscles. Those are the, as I understand it, those are the largest axons in our spinal cord. Those are the fastest conducting, largest. So, obviously... Uh, there's a lot of indications that show that the information going to the cerebellum needs to get there quickly, presumably because it has a job to do, which is to predict what to do next. Um, and so you can't afford tardy tardy signals. So it might very well be the case in a perfect world that it would be great to have lots of pre-processing. Of inputs to the cerebellum, but there just isn't time for it, and so uh, that that undoubtedly makes the cerebellum's processing job more difficult. But that's the way things have to be. So, is there anybody that's
3: that's shown that the cerebellum is less accurate, or uh, there's a mismatch and you know overgeneralization because it doesn't have time to do a lot of sophisticated pre-processing so that it does well and fast in time, but it's rougher or somehow. You'd want a some cerebellar dependent task that the cerebellum dependent part of it is yeah. kind of less specific yeah. or something.
2: No, I, w- I would say, as a baseball player, every time I was a little late on getting around on the fastball, you could argue that my uh, 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 there's some evidence that it, that it didn't that it didn't go fast enough. So yeah, I think um, not all, but some some of our movements uh, re- need to be not only accurate but uh, 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 quick. And, in fact, uh, that's the reason, from an engineering standpoint, that's the reason for using prediction to make uh, movements accurate, because predictions can be done quickly, whereas relying on feedback, starting the movement and then realizing it's not going well, and then fixing it has to be slow. And so, I think that's just part and parcel with what the cerebellum's job is, uh, and that is to... uh, Make suggestions about what to do next to make movements accurate, and in doing it in a predictive sort of way, it can also operate quickly. And so, you
0: know, so can you can you talk a little bit more about prediction? How is it that it's actually performed? How do circuits predict the future from the past?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a good question. So so uh, and and it's a fun computational task. So. Um, like, like many places in the brain, uh, part of what happens in the cerebellum is, is uh, uh, inputs, inputs arrive and they're processed and then outputs are produced. And in this case, we'll call the output of the cerebellum the, the prediction. And so uh, um, there, there's a natural flow to that uh, with, with some delay in time and such. And so the, the trick to predictions is learning. So so uh, predict, if you build in a prediction, that's not really a prediction. That's you built in an expectation. So what it means to, to predict things is you have to learn that uh, something bad follows this particular input. Or, and so what it really, the, the real computational task is designing the learning mechanism to do that right. And, and here's what's interesting about that. Um, so you make a movement and the cerebellum helped you make it and it was wrong. You stubbed your toe, say. Alright? So the climb in fact it's the climbing fiber input that would be activated by that toe stubbing and signal back to the cerebellum, oops, that wasn't right. All right? Now here's the here's the tricky task. Uh, the, the synapses that it has to fix, the, 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 the changes in synaptic strength that it has to make are at the synapses that aren't active right then and there. They were active a uh, 100 milliseconds ago. And so the, what's interesting is the cerebellum has a set of mechanisms, both um, circuitry mechanisms and the molecular and cellular mechanisms for plasticity that implement that job. And so when a climbing fiber input arrives and and it's signaling uh, what we just did was wrong and needs to be fixed, it modifies synapses that were active about 100 milliseconds ago because those were the ones that contributed to the bad decision and what to do next. And one of the one of the things that I think that we've contributed from our work is to show that uh, what what people often call the the, the the learned timing of what the cerebellum can do is, is actually uh, flex temporal flexibility in learning and, and the task is this that may, maybe the signal that predicted that you were about to stub your t- toe occurred a half a second ago uh, but the the cerebellar output that led to your toe being stubbed was 100 milliseconds ago. And so the cerebellum has learned to fill that gap of that 400 milliseconds uh, so that the, the, even though the signal happened a while ago and the output happened now, the learning will fix what fix what happened just a little bit ago and not fix what happened right now or what happened a half a second ago. And so it fixes just the right things. So that the next time you come around and that that same input arrives, which means my foot swinging forward, I'm walking and my foot swinging forward, then the cerebellum has adjusted a few things. So now the to predict that oh in this circumstance the foot needs to be raised a little higher, and then you don't stub your toe. And so that's that's the way the cerebellum is uh, using learning to, to develop a set of predictions and then using them to improve performance.
1: So Charlie, so. Uh, if I got this right, you're saying the cerebellum solution to the credit assignment problem is to assign credit to whatever happened exactly 100 milliseconds.
2: Yeah, it's sort of it's sort of it's it's pre-programmed in with the expectation that when an error arrives, what it's through the climbing fibers, what it's really signaling is there was a mistake 100 milliseconds ago. Uh-huh. That's kind of that's what's fixed. And so it, to do
1: that, it has to know how long it takes its error to propagate. Through behavior and to come back plus or plus it? or minus. That's and right. And so, so that so that hundred milliseconds becomes a really special time. That's the error correction loop time for the motor system or something. Presumably,
2: standpoint. right? And so then then it uses the the old computational pr- principle um, of a of a, you know what I'm trying to say um, eligibility trace. Uh-huh. So the idea then is that what we, the way that we used to think about plasticity is that a teaching signal would interact with current activity to say, any synapse that's active right now, you're the one that should be modified. But rather than that, if, this, if, the, if the synapses have molecular mechanisms that sort of keep track of was I active a little while ago, we, and we've come to call those eligibility traces, then it's, it's those signals that a teaching signal like the climbing fiber interacts with and so then it can it can change synapses that were active a little while ago as opposed to right now and that's terribly useful if you're trying to learn predictions since the since the information about we made a mistake arrives after you made the mistake it, you, you can't do it any other
1: but way any change in the timing through that loop would would be would be deadly then because if it now takes 120 milliseconds for my error to propagate around and come back as an error signal, then I'm going to start changing the wrong synapses. I'm going to make more errors. Um, doesn't that sound like a fragile system?
2: Oh, I'd be a little squeamish about the difference between 100 and 120, but certainly if you could delay it by a quarter of a second, it would be, presumably it would be devastating, right? You, you would just learn Do the wrong Do you think that ways. ever
1: happens? I mean, maybe there's some it that. would sure be a, it would
2: sure be a strange experiment if you could do that you, you, you could as an uh, training an animal to stop stubbing its toe it would pick up its foot too early or too late It would pick up its foot you know half a step too early in anticipating that time when it usually stubs it so it would be an interesting test of the of, of how that loop is fixed but All
5: right. All right. Sorry. Yeah, So this this whole mechanism sounds like it's in um, an ongoing online type learning mechanism. I know I was not supposed to mention the talk, but at your talk you said that part of the learning mechanism involves um, growth of new synapses, which I would assume takes longer than 500 milliseconds. And would involve a much slower learning mechanism than um, going from one second to the next learning to not stub your toe. It seems like it's something that would take on the order of like, you know, 24 hours or something like that. Actually, you're, in, in experiments with your rabbits and, and the eye blink conditioning, um, the rabbits don't learn to blink their eyes until the day after. That's right. After, That's um, right. So how, how does that fit in? with Well, so the, there's two feeling? things
2: to say about that. One is that there are at least two uh, sites of synaptic plasticity in the cerebellum for learning like that. And we've been talking about the plasticity in the cerebellar cortex that's controlled by the climbing fibers. You're you're referring to the plasticity in the cerebellar deep nuclei that's uh, apparently not controlled by the climbing fibers. It's controlled by a circuitry within the cerebellum uh, itself. So um, the fact that those synapses change slowly isn't inconsistent with the things we were just talking about. But what I think it does reflect is that, um, that, and and been, there's been some controversy about the about the the role of plasticity in the cerebellar deep nucleus, with with different cerebellar neuroscientists studying different systems coming up with different answers. And I think with the with the benefit of a, a little hindsight and perspective, I think what's um, getting close to being justified to say is that. Um, Different, under different circumstances, that plasticity may already exist before the experiment started. In different circumstances, it wouldn't. So, and, and th- what, I, what I what what we had talked about earlier is the plasticity in, in the cerebellar deep nucleus may operate under a, a very different set of rules than the than the the error-driven plasticity that we've been talking about cerebellar cortex. And part of those rules may be necessary because. Um, there aren't very many of those synapses in the cerebellar deep nucleus, particularly compared to the vast number of synapses in the cerebellar cortex, that um, that are, that, that are uh, control, whose plasticity is controlled by what we were just talking about. Uh, so, if that's true, then then one of the tasks of the cerebellum may be to allocate those synapses uh, only for the circumstances that are necessary. So, for example. Uh, we study a very arbitrary and unnatural thing. We ask rabbits to close their eyelid when a tone comes on. And I, uh, it's very unlikely that the animals ever experienced that prior to, to us getting a hold of them. And so the I, the idea from this would be that in that circumstance, uh, the, the, the appropriate synapses, those activated by the tone and controlling eyelid responses, don't exist um, beforehand. In fact, one of the tasks of uh, the cerebellum in learning this new response is to build them. All right, so in that instance, we might be really impressed by the, the fundamental importance of the plasticity in the cerebellar deep nucleus. But if we switch to a different way that people study, tend to study the cerebellum, like adaptation of the vestibulo-ocular reflex, which is an ongoing behavior that animals have been using their entire lives before we pick them up and use them in experiments, we presume that those deep nucleus synapses exist. And so now we might be far less impressed by the contribution of changes there. And so um, I think you need those synapses. Uh, the cerebellum needs those synapses to control a response that it's being asked to control. Uh, if it's a response that it's already been controlling for a while, then there's going to be no, no big need to, to make big changes in them, maybe small changes. Um, but but if we pick a whole new thing for the cerebellum control, one of the initial tasks may be to grow a new synapses. And in that instance, we would be absolutely convinced that plasticity there is fundamentally important. And it's slow. And that's one of the interesting things. When we train our rabbits in our cerebellar task, which is arbitrary, it takes them several days to learn, which has always puzzled people because what we know from uh, other experiments in cerebellar learning in different systems, the cerebellar learning can complete quite fast. Well, those, uh, if we if we see that whole picture the way I described it, then those things aren't necessarily contradictory. Right. That uh, if you ask the cerebellum to do something completely new, it's got some slower, difficult learning and plasticity to do that. It's going to take a couple days to figure out. If you're asking the cerebellum to adapt a response that it's already been controlling for a long time, it can do it pretty quickly. So, so I think that's the differences in time scale that
5: you uh, have. Yeah, yeah, that sounds that sounds very reasonable. So would you predict then that um, a rabbit that's been ex- went through extinction, of the eye uh, blink conditioning, would then relearn the Absolutely. and the, the and they do almost it's, immediately. That's
2: right. Yeah. And they do so so the simplest way to say it is the only aspect of eyelid conditioning that's slow is the very first time we train the animal. Yeah. All the all the all the unlearning or extinction and relearning and re extinction or re relearning that would happen after that would all be fast, like yeah. the cerebellar learning that we're used to thinking about. The only time that it's ever slow is that very first time. And I think that fits this idea that there's some Sort of resource allocation plasticity that has to happen in the cerebellar deep nucleus to start to start the whole thing. Now, what's odd is is once in a once a, every couple of years we get a rabbit that learns incredibly quickly, and maybe for unknown reasons, maybe chance, maybe that rabbit has some of those synapses already and can learn uh, five times faster. Are than, you mating them? No, oh. <laughs>
5: <laughs> super rabbit.
2: Uh, it might be chance. It, it might just, you know, be somebody zigged when it shoulda zagged. Who knows? But um, So I, I think there are, are, are different timescales of learning in the cerebellum that we tap into differently under different circumstances.
1: I'd like to get back to the timing, sort of timing issues. Sure. So one of the things I noticed in your data that is that the, the eye blink, the conditioned eye blink, always happens sort of just in time. Yeah. And if there's a really long Delay, it happens late. And if there's an early delay, it happens earlier. And so it's not just a, a matter of learning that the puff is coming, but it's learning when the puff is coming. And I guess if you, you could fool an animal and give the puff of air puff too early or too late, and completely an animal would not blink at the right time. They wouldn't uh, learn at all, actually. Uh, that's right. Yeah. So they, uh, it's, it sort of sounds like the animal is learning when to expect it, and that comes up in all kinds of other situations, too. In the basal ganglia, the dopamine cells fire when there's a reward, and then they quit firing in response to the reward, which start firing on a cue, and then if the reward doesn't come, the cells pause, like they knew exactly when the reward was supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. So uh, part of what's, and, and it also fits into our regular, learning our own experience that we know that we we learn the timings of things and we can prepare for them and a lot of motor learning has to do with just knowing when to expect something to happen so that you can be ready to make the right movement. So I'm wondering, you you know, how how does the brain time things? How does the brain make an estimate of time? Is there a central clock in the brain? Are there a bunch of different clocks? Do they synchronize with each other? How do we do that? Yeah, do we know well, how do we do that? Well,
2: I, again, I wouldn't want to uh, speak with great authority over uh, grand theories of timing in the brain. I, I mean, I, I think one thing that's safe to say is that uh, different systems in the brain will tell time or generate temporal codes in different ways, in, in part because for uh, some of them have to deal with timing and temporal coding at different timescales. I think of the differences between the cerebellum and basal ganglia, for example, one of, one of them being uh, that they, they seem to pay attention to things and time things over different time scales. And so it seems likely then that in designing a mechanism to do that, you, you might have to use different building blocks and different principles to, 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 to time things over the course of uh, tens to hundreds of milliseconds, the way the cerebellum does, or... or uh, tens of a seconds to tens of seconds, the way the basal ganglia does, it. it would seem very difficult to do both of those tasks with the same principles.
4: If, if I may speculate, uh, the in, so information can travel really fast to the cerebellum, like in less than 10 milliseconds, you get the mossy fibers firing, and then you have about 100 milliseconds to correct motion or whatever, um, and the information carried by the mossy fibers to the granule cells can reverberate through the Golgi, through a Golgi cell, granule cell column, Mm -hmm. right? And that might be a measure of time, right? And there you have two systems, right? It's the same information in principle. uh, Mossy fibers directly stimulating um, the Golgi cells and then through parallel fibers, so those will be like the contextual information, right? And you could you could in principle think that you could change how Golgi cells synchronize along a beam of parallel fibers. Um, I think there's some a beam, a beam of action uh, axons of um, a bundle of acting No, okay, for our listeners, granule cells and an axon up, and then all the all of them run parallel, and as they. Uh, uh, Run along together. They stimulate Golgi cells and Purkinje cells, but let's talk about Golgi cells. Okay. <laughs> so, so you could you could have different clocks in that. I mean, just thinking about it, right? not
1: this the Breitenberg idea?
4: Yeah, uh, kind of. Ago. Well, it's, that, it's the Breitenberg idea applied to Golgi cells, and I think Eric the Shooter did um, some work on it. Some exp- some theoretical modeling work on. Um, So, looking correlations.
1: Why don't you just remind us about what Breitenberg's idea was?
4: Um, So, the idea from Brightenberg was that timing in the cerebellum was um, that um, uh, the cerebellum is a collection of delay lines, and the delay comes from the propagation of action potentials along the parallel fibers, and these action potentials will sequentially activate uh, Purkinje cells, and each Purkinje cell will be connected to a different set of set of muscles. And that's how you create motion. Uh, it turns out that, I mean, the timing, uh, if you look at the timing of the action potentials that they propagate, they don't fit actual motion. They, they cannot, you will you will need more delays somewhere else down the line uh, to actually do the that. The
1: time scale is too short for yes. real Yeah, at
4: least for mammals, right? I don't know how fast they're in turtles.
2: Well, the other criticism for that idea is that that, that would limit the cerebellum to only certain fixed sequences of muscle twitching right. the, the, those that lie along a parallel fiber and that would be very limiting
4: right
2: uh, so there were there were two problems one is the timescale was way off it was way too fast despite how slow parallel fibers are in, uh, relative to other axons in the brain it was still too fast uh, to be a time scale that matters and, and it would limit it would limit the cerebellum to a, a, a very very small subset of, of sequences of muscle twitches, which would, would seem impossible to explain the way we move. Right. Uh,
1: so you are re, uh, uh, revitalizing the idea for purposes of creating inhibition that moves in a sequence. Well,
4: like, like uh, I mean, what I did for what I, my work in the cerebellum was basically looking at parallel fibers propagating, but looking at how feedforward forward inhibition blocks this Purkinje cell beam of activation. Yeah. And that's why you don't see those beams when you do experiments. And, uh, yeah. I, uh,
2: I, So, I, just to have my two, two cents worth, I think that uh, the whole idea of be, a, uh, beams of activation in the cerebellum is an experimental artifact. Right. Uh, in, in, in the sense that it's true that given the way that the parallel fibers are, are all lined up together running in the same directions, and given that uh, when they arrive at their targets and make excitation, they make excitation right right where they are, and in inhibition in adjacent areas. Mm-hmm. So that uh, if you stick a big fat stimulating, elating electrode in the cerebellum and stimulate, you get a beam of excitation surrounded by on both sides by inhibition. Because
4: you overcome
2: that kind you. of input never happens in the in the real cerebellum, and so so beams are something that happens when you stimulate in crazy stupid ways. Right. But, but the, the, the notion, which unfortunately became popular for a long time and I think has been disabused, that somehow these beams of excitation surrounded by inhibition were a principle or computational unit of the cerebellum, I think, was just entirely misguided.
4: True, but uh, the uh, fact is that uh, the axons are there. They are, at least in the rad, are five millimeters long, total length. Um, I think in the turtle they go they wrap around the entire um, cerebellum, and uh, at least in, in the work that I've done, I mean you you just stimulate the face of a rat and then you record uh, the Perkinia cells of, on top of the granule cells that you were stimulating. Those Purkinje cells are going to fire um, synchronously. Then go- there's going to be inhibition, and then there's going to be nothing along along the, the, the parallel fiber pathway. But then, if you block with uh, I- inhibition, those perkinia cells that are far away from the site of stimulation will actually show um, a perkinia cell beam because you have unblock, you have blocked the inhibition. Mm-hmm. So that what that tells. Me is that there is actually the, the the axons of the parallel fibers are actually functional. So the the, the the beam of information is there. It is not translated into action potentials of the soma of the Purkinje cells, maybe not at the soma of the Golgi cells immediately, but they are doing some dendritic computation with that information. That is giving some context. I mean, just to use some engineering word, right? There is some contextual information being propagated very far away from the site that you are delivering it at the beginning and that that can give us some idea for this timing i mean the how long it takes to propagate the entire length of the um parallel fibers I don't remember, but it's like the the, the speed of a parallel fiber is like point fifteen meters per second i think i think um, um and uh, and so we can calculate that how that that gives you a delay already if you have some coordination with a climbing fiber in another in another um Perpendicular beam, right? Because it seems that I amy mean, fibers are organized perpendicularly mm-hmm. to the parallel fibers, right? So that that you could create a, a clock, a coincidence detection there, that gives you some kind of timing at different distances, right? I mean, this is like total right. kind of like hand but waving. A,
2: yeah. But again, the criticism of that is that the the re, the the range over which one could time with a mechanism like that right. is about 15 milliseconds. Right, right. A,
1: And, and, and that's fast not fast the
2: time scale know. on which the cerebellum right. works. Right.
1: There right. might be something happening, though, in that So there's scale. a computational principle uh-huh. there,
2: but it's not the fundamental sure. computational, sure. computational no, principle. No, I totally believe that. So, <laughs>
1: so going back to the
3: computational principles, you talked about, oh, you, because of the time scale and, saying the cerebellum up to... Uh, a tenth of a second is way different than uh, basal ganglia up to seconds or tenths of seconds. That you may not have a computational, shared computational principle. But well, one of the things that that, that um, part of this idea of uh, basically you you have a transient input and has a long a long lasting cascade of activity that um, that that allows you to time. You're saying uh, over a hundred. Uh, a second, up to a second in the in the cerebellum, right? That's what you need to, to do that. Um, one of the problems with that is is that yeah, you, know, you think of this as one ping, and then it lasts for a second. Um, but then if you get more th- coming, things coming in faster than your memory, then you have problems potentially with interference. So it's kind of going on Fidel's point of different mismatches, differences in time scales between the delays you need and the speed that the information is coming in. So one of the things that, mm-hmm. that people talk about about having so many cells in this cerebellum is to have different patterns of activity to be independent. And part of that may be temporal from the expansion of time uh, um, that, that you come in. Because if you spread things out on a long tr- chain, but if you spread them out randomly over lots of cells, then different chains won't interact that much. They won't have interference over time. And so you may, but you may have that same thing. People talk about the same kind of expansion of cell numbers uh, in the striatum. And part of that, whether that's spatial, also may be temporal so that you can take uh, temporal patterns and spread it across numbers of things. Now, this is complete speculation that it has anything to do with time. People also talk about things from the thalamus to the to V1 or whatever as having a massive ex- expansion in, in cell numbers. And so what you may, one of the reasons to do that, besides a spatial kind of uh, uh, reason of, of making individual patterns independent. You may be able to expand time in, in a way of having a cascade mm-hmm. uh, that goes across without having a, this screw-up in time, because if your information goes faster than your temporal representation, then you have interference.
4: We, we are forgetting, well, we're not forgetting, but uh, there's another component, right? So, at least in the sensory input to the cerebellum, you have the immediate response, the direct pathway, and the one that goes through the cortex. That feeds back. So, yes, so it feeds back to to the same patch of granule cells that were activated first. You get a bit first bump of activity, and then a second bump some milliseconds later. I don't remember the exact time. So that adds to the dynamics, right? And you could speculate that the first bump will activate some parallel fibers, the second bump will activate. We don't know that. We, right now, I don't know if, how to even start doing an experiment to address those things, right? Uh, but the beauty about the cerebellum is that we have the, we can create all these models, right? Uh, because we know the anatomy um, of the system.
2: Well, yeah, I think that one of the fun things about building models is that we, we, can, we can ask questions that are just literally impossible to ask uh, in the real brain. One of them would be, why, why do you need so many granule cells in the cerebellum? The the famous Eccles Ito and Satagathai book uh, in 1969, which which basically allowed all of us to work on the cerebellum at the amazing level that we can, because it gave us most of the wiring diagram of the cerebellum. Um, you know, in, in the last chapter of that book, uh, John Eccles was sort of waxing philosophic after this beautiful book of all this detail of different things. And uh, one of my favorite sentences in there is he he, he makes excuse me makes reference to the, the, the really a, a amazingly large number of granule cells that the cerebellum contains I mean, at the time they were wondering that the, the about o- almost half of the cells in the entire brain might be granule cells in the cerebellum which is turns out to be pretty close to true not quite uh, and he says he says you know we wo- uh, the, my, the sentence that I like he says we won't understand the cerebellum until we understand why it has to have so many granule cells and so and, and I kind of buy the idea Um that one of the reasons why is not only that you're trying to represent all the stimuli that coming in but you're sort of um, in in the same way that uh, Einstein talked about space time I guess not that this is that complicated but we're also we're talking about stimulus time here is that it's not just representing what stimuli are active right now or what the position of the body is right now but but the timing over which that's been happening and it would it would Presumably, take a lot more cells to do that kind of coding, uh, and to communicate that to the cerebellum, and let the cerebellum learn about that input than it would if it was just, oh, uh, here's the stimuli that are uh, that are happening right now. But one of one of the interesting things about building simulations, we can never, at least by today's standards, with computers, we can never build simulations, at least for me, as big as I want them to be. So a cubic, a cubic. You know there there are there are far more cells in a cubic millimeter of the cerebellar cortex than I can possibly build into my simulations right now. I'm working on a million cell simulation. Even that is is a toy compared to what we would need to understand. And so people have different ideas about that. Some people will say, well, it's. Some people will say it's. The point of a model is to simplify things. Other people will say, "Well, if you're if you're that far off on numbers of cells, you're not even." You, you, I don't even want to listen to what you have to say because it's you're obviously not even close. Um, but one of the things that would be interesting would with, that you could do with the simulation would be to ask, uh, "What if I built a simulation, simula- several simulations that were?" Uh, as similar as we can make them, except for their size, their number of granule cells, and how, how would they how would they differ that way? And and we have thought about doing that, but I, but I wonder if that's about the only way that we could probe questions like that right now. And um, I'm interested in, in like you in, in this idea that uh, one of the reasons for having lots of cells is that lots of things are happening at once, and so. Uh, it might be useful to encode the collection of things. So you might want some of the ce- some of the granule cells to be encoding, "Hey, this unique collection of weird things is happening." It mu- what, there are, there might be only one important component of that collection, and you might want some of the cells encoding, "Hey, I know there's a st- bunch of stuff going on, but one thing that's happening is that my elbow has bent 90 degrees," um, and you might want. Uh, just to make it even harder, you might want small combinations of them. I know there's a lot of things going on, but the two things that are important is elbow bent 90 degrees and wrist relaxed. I don't, you know. Uh, and so it, it might just be the case that uh, uh, the way the way to make the, mo- the best predictions is to be able to have some flexibility about whether you would, whether what's important in this circumstance is the the entire collections of things or individual components. And the only way the brain could do that would be to build in mechanisms that would build representations, meaning activities of cells, uh, for those different things. Some of them representing this collection, some of them representing one particular specific thing. That's got to take a lot of cells but those are ideas that we might be able to test with simulations now. We we've started with our simulations of the cerebellum now to start asking questions like that. So, we get stuck in this rut where we we train our simulation in the same way, simple way that we train our rabbits, which is we we play a tone. And we know how tones activate cerebellar inputs and so we activate the simulated inputs in the same way. Um, but in the real world, as you were alluding to, lots of things can happen. So we've started giving, giving really complicated patterns of inputs to our simulations and asking, what's the representation scheme that happens there? Does, it, does, it, does that mess everything up? If I was playing a tone, mimicking a tone, uh, and there's a certain representation there, and then I add a bunch of other things, too, does the tone representation completely go away, or is it there plus other stuff, too? And I think, I think that's what you're asking, and, and uh, we're, we're working on that.
1: So it seems to me that in your model the future is predicted without ever creating a representation of the future. Like it, you could imagine a cerebellum that some part of it creates the activity pattern that would have arisen 100 milliseconds from now. Yeah. And and that a system that could do that would be incredibly valuable in a motor system. It could Produce a internal model of the future that could be tested against what actually happens, and there are plenty of theories of predictive control in which there is an internal representation of the future right do you think that we don't actually need that you, uh, I mean in your in your model the future does get predicted a hundred milliseconds or so ahead of time without ever making really a a representation of what the future is going to look like, or isn't that true, or or does it? Uh, is there a neural representation? That sounds about right.
2: That sounds about right. I, I you know, I,
3: the,
2: the more I study the brain, and the more I lecture about the brain to undergraduates, where I'm trying to simplify things uh, into into concepts that they can write down, and, and then and then. Be tested on. Um, one of one, you know one of the themes that, uh, that 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 grows on me more and more, and that maybe we that, that I start to feel more and more like that we underappreciate is is specialization. That uh, we we see in the visual system, for example, even though we experience uh, what's, what seems to us a very unified visual experience objects are there, they're arranged, they have color and motion, and yet when we look in the visual system, all those different components are computed in completely different parts of the visual system. Colors in V4, motion uh, for the same object would be in MT or MST, a little ways away. And um, I think one interesting question that we need to to nail down very firmly as systems neuroscience is, why why is the brain arranged that way? And, And I think a good candidate is that the is is to is to remind ourselves that each what each system in the brain is doing what each patch of um, the brain is doing is computing something, and uh, its wiring is designed to make that computation, and that's all it can do. And uh, if uh, if there's something that's not quite like this that needs to be done, the next patch of brain over may have to do that. And so. Uh, getting back to the cerebellum, then my, my, my answer to that would be that um, uh, it's the it's the cerebellum it's the cerebellum's task to predict uh, based on previous experience uh, what we should do next, and that uh, not what's going to happen next. not what's going to happen next, but but what 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 we basically what we wish what we should have done last time but didn't right. Um, and that's a computational trick. And if we need to imagine in our heads um, the list of possibilities of what might happen, then that's a different computational trick and that a different part of the brain is with a different organization and different inputs and different outputs uh, would have to do that. So I think some of this is is sort of reminding ourselves that each little, each little system or each little patch or what, whatever the scale that you want to imagine, each of them in a sense is a one-trick pony. They, they compute something, and uh, when we're trying to think of the way to organize things to, to build grand theories of the brain, sometimes I think we forget that, and that we we ask too much from each system, in um, wondering what it could be doing, and I think we forget that it, it it is a one-trick pony, and that and I think that explains why the brain is organized the way it is. Maybe uh, is that. Uh, we had to put color processing here and motion processing there because those are slightly, presumably, those are slightly different computations. And so they couldn't coexist in the same patch of visual cortex. They had to be separated. And so uh, if, you want, if you want to know about the list of possible things that could have happened for the future, you'd have to ask another part of the brain. The, the, the cerebellum has this job, it's a hard job, as we've been talking about, because it's got to do it quickly. And the results are important because if you stumble, you might get eaten by a coyote. Um, and, and and so its its, it's wiring is designed to do that. And it isn't going to do much more because that's hard enough, presumably, what it does. I
0: think that's a great note to end on. It's always great to end on grand theories. Oh, if there we're you go. <laughs> but thanks so much for being here. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop.
2: My pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>